We are in the midst of studying in some considerable detail the wonderful words of life found in the Apostle Peter's first letter, first of two letters in your New Testament, First Peter, turning to chapter 1, if you will, First Peter chapter 1. Thirty years before writing this letter, Peter was mending his nets on the shores of Galilee. Thirty years before writing this letter. He and his small crew had been up all night and had nothing but seaweed and bait fish for their effort. But on that particular day, which Peter could never forget, Jesus of Nazareth was teaching a small congregation of people who had gathered on the hillside near the beach. Luke records that the needy crowd of people were literally pressing up against Jesus, apparently even toward the sea. No doubt, perhaps, his sandals were getting wet. Two fishing rigs were docked there, and we read from Luke's sacred pen that Jesus stepped into Simon Peter's boat. And asked him, and I quote from the gospel, put out a little way from the land. Jesus sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, I wonder what was his tone of voice. Maybe there was a long yawn from all the labor the night before. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Nothing like a professional fisherman taking instructions from a carpenter. But we love this true story, don't we? You know... What happened? They drew such a quantity of fish that the scriptures record the nets began to break. And then Peter calling for the other boat, they too brought in such a catch that both boats began to sink. Now this was Peter's Waterloo. And yes, I mean to play on the words. On that morning, in his own heaving boat, combined, I am sure, with the preaching of Jesus moments before, and then witnessing with his own eyes in his own boat that the creator of earth, sky, and seas commands the fish to fill the nets. It is written, Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But the master of the sea is also the savior of sinners. Not only does Jesus not walk away 
from Peter. It is written, Luke 5, 10 and 11. Do not fear, Peter. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, and oh, beloved, this is the telling phrase. They left everything and followed Jesus. This was the gospel lived out that day on the shores of Galilee. Jesus comes. The sinner repents. The Savior calls. And the new disciple leaves everything to follow Jesus. More than 2,000 years later, the same pattern of a gracious calling of a Savior is still taking place in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. I want you to keep the image in your mind of that day in Peter's life. And now, three decades later, the fisher of men writes these words. You follow along beginning at verse 17. He says, if you address as father... The one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. And then as if to say, make no mistake, the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who, through him, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So, flashback now those 30 years that I asked you to keep in mind. Do you remember Peter's reaction to the presence of Jesus in his boat once his spiritual eyes were opened to the reality of Christ, all he could do in that moment was to cry out in fear, Depart from me! I am a sinful man! And I want to suggest to you that that, that response is literally the primal instinct of every sinner since our first parents. What did they do? They hid themselves in the bushes at the sound of God walking in the garden. They attempted to cover their nakedness, you remember, with their own work of sewing leaves together. Now show me a sinner, any sinner, who has no fear of God before his or her eyes, and I'll show you a man or a woman 
who really hasn't encountered the God of the Bible at all. Any sinner, any child of Adam has an encounter with the living God. They either run and hide, fall on their knees, and confess themselves to be sinners. Jesus explained that the judgment of God in His righteous wrath will fall suddenly on those who refuse to confess their sinfulness and cry for mercy. This is the judgment. The basis of judgment is this, Jesus says, that light has come into the world. Well, that's good news. But the judgment, Jesus says, is that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Furthermore, we hear in their natural state, every sinner will not come to the light, Jesus says, because their deeds are evil. They'd rather live on in darkness and embrace their sins than come to the light. But our sins and the darkness of a fallen world is no match when Jesus intends to rescue and to save. A sinner exposed by that grace can only cry, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In every case, as in Peter's case, there must be what? The fear not of a Christ who will redeem and thus effectually call a sinner all the way into discipleship. Follow me, Peter. What we've been saying all along in this series of messages from Peter and everywhere else in the Bible, it is a work of grace, every glorious part of it. In previous verses, actually above our text today, Peter has called the redeemed the children of God. You remember that. As obedient children, he says in verse 14, they are to take seriously the call to a devout and holy life. We looked at that last Lord's Day. But in verse 17, it is not Peter's purpose to frighten now the children into obedience by mentioning the fact that their heavenly Father is also a judge. The judge, it says there in verse 17, of every person's work. But Peter's not saying, well, it's wonderful to be called a child of God in one verse, and then threaten them with God's eternal damnation and judgment in the next. So we need to discover the reason why he takes the approach that he does. I want you to know that Peter would readily agree with the Apostle Paul. This is a done deal if you know Christ as your Savior. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the fear not. But Peter at the same time 
would not have the readers of his letter, and that's us this morning, for a minute begin to presume upon the Father's love, or even the promise that anything I do as his child cannot ultimately bring me down to hell, and that is a statement of fact. But Peter will not have us presume upon our relationship. So what is he saying here in verse 17? It goes something like this, I think. If or since you do have the grace to call God the judge your own father, you understand that your father is the God who will send people to hell for the same sins, by the way, that you commit as his children. And then he reminds them, if you're looking there at verse 17, that this God is a totally objective and impartial God. He finds all men guilty for all of sin. This God who has redeemed you and not dealt with you according to your transgressions and only because He has mercy on whom He will have mercy. He's saying, just how seriously do you think you should take the call? To live a godly life. He's not scaring them into holiness. But he's wanting them to have a profound understanding that the only difference between them and a hell-bent sinner is the pure mercy of God. How then should they live? While there is no fear of hell in the child of God... Let there at least be a sober and reverential respect, what theologians call a godly fear. A fear for the one who has saved you from wrath and made you his own child. What we're asking of all of us this morning out of this text is, just how does the gospel, which is good news, affect your conduct during the rest of the days of your life or since you have come to Christ? How does the gospel affect your life as one who has been a recipient of mercy and not judgment? I borrow from Paul. Peter does too. When he answers, I beseech you therefore, brothers... And sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, your whole self unto God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. This is your reasonable service. A life lived for God's glory. A life of worship. The only reasonable response to mercy received. Would you say amen to that? So, verse 17, be clear, is Peter's antidote to the tendency, and we have this tendency, of taking the grace-based father-son relationship for granted. God forbid. Calling God our Father and knowing that He will not judge us as He will others is no excuse for sinning. 
I apply this, I must apply this personally to myself, and it's painful application. But I'm supposed to be thinking like this, Peter says, when I think that some people will rightly go to hell for eternity and be judged forever for the same sins I commit, then what attitude should I have about my many transgressions? And they are many, especially those committed too often very willfully. Peter's going to get even more passionate about this as we move ahead. Beginning at verse 18, he brings fresh scenes of Calvary before our eyes. When he says, knowing that you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Does it have an impact on you to reflect upon that? Should this not be a deterrent to any conscious and willful disobedience? I shudder at the number of times in a pastoral role that I've actually had people say to me, I know it's wrong, but. And Peter is saying, can we really contemplate the cross and the bleeding sacrifice that gives us undeserved privilege of calling Him Father and then, like some prodigal, spend our inheritance on riotous living? Why do you think that parable is in the New Testament? Eventually, sooner or later, it's a story about us all. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with cheap things, perishable things. What are cheap, perishable things in light of eternity? Well, how about silver and gold? How's that for a a paradigm shift, a sense of values being turned on its heels. You're not redeemed with those things. Verse 19, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Beloved, the next time you and I do battle with our flesh, and we will before probably this day ends, we ought to speak the blood of Christ and consider its worth. Shall we continue to practice those sins for which the blood of Christ was poured out? Now, it is true that where our sin abounded, grace abounds the more. So, do we go on sinning? Does this argument sound familiar? How about the answer? Shall we go on sinning? God, what? Forbid. It would be to hold the blood of Christ as a thing of little value. And yet there are countless numbers, even of God's redeemed, who do pursue perishable things like silver and gold and have not followed in obedience too much of their lives spent there in the pig pen, eating the husks of this world.
born in the 1800s in New Hampshire. Anybody from New Hampshire today? Jenny Evelyn Husey. A woman, we are told, we don't know much about her. We know how we, she spent the better part of her life. She believed God called her to sacrifice every day of her adult life for a lifetime caring for an invalid sister. She didn't marry. She stayed with, dressed, cleaned, fed her invalid sister. And Jenny Evelyn Husey, I think, captured the essence of Peter's message here when she learned the secret of keeping the scenes of Calvary fresh in her soul. Here's what she penned. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lord, lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. And perhaps this needs to be our daily prayer. Jenny rightly applied the bleeding sacrifice when in the last line she penned these words. I assume that this is how she began every day of her unselfish labor. May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for Thee. Even Thy cup of grief to share. Thou hast borne all for me, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. How vivid Peter's message must have been in particular to those Jewish believers that had embraced Christ as Messiah and Savior. Too few of them, but a remnant And there is in every generation. I want you to note there in verse 19, the imagery of Old Testament blood sacrifices. He knows who he's writing to and he knows how vivid these pictures will be in their minds of the sacrificial lambs and goats and bulls and the blood everywhere. Redeemed, he says, with precious blood. As of a lamb. Yes, Peter, we understand that. Unblemished and spotless. Yes, yes, way back in Leviticus, only only a healthy, perfect lamb should be brought for such sober purposes. But then he says, but this is the blood of Christ. This sacrificial bloodletting image, sadly and tragically, was not in the mind of the majority of people looking for a Messiah. Generations later, it is still not. The Messiah for them was to usher in an earth-based peace and prosperity. A geopolitical revolution bringing, uh, hopefully, supremacy to a national Israel. 
what they could not see and what they would clearly reject is a battered and bloodied man hanging on a cross. So offensive to them that they even helped to nail him there. Along with our sins. And so the scriptures record, he came unto his own. And his own received him not. He came into a world of us Gentiles and we knew him not. But this Jesus truly was the Son of God. In fact, he was the very Lamb of God. Not because John the Baptist declared him to be, though he did. But as we read in our text, because God the Father... Before the foundation of the world, see that in verse 20, knew him. When all three persons of the Godhead laid out a battle plan to rescue the very ones that Peter said back in verses 1 and 2, a long time ago now in our studies of this letter, were called, you remember, the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Verse 20, this Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, the Redeemer of sinners, Peter says, and this one really struck at my heart. He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Why would he come? Why would he leave the glory? Why would he surrender himself to such unspeakable abuse and torment? Why would he hang upon a cross? Why would he not call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free? And Peter says, it is for your sakes and mine. How shall we view our willful bent to sin in the face of a thorn-crowned Savior like this? Peter is saying, how does all of that make you feel? Does redemption's price, the precious blood, redemption's lamb, Jesus himself, Redemption in the mind and heart of God through all eternity past. Does this have any bearing at all on your desire for sin? Or will it bring you to bow under his lordship and leadership of your life? Now, I personally testify to you that I do need more scenes of Calvary when doing battle with the principle of indwelling sin. We've all got it. And we'll have it till Jesus comes. Perhaps all of us can pray more earnestly that we might love Him more and love our sin a whole lot less. We would do well to join Jenny in prayer. Lead me to Calvary. But I want you to hear this before we leave today. Peter 
and of course being directed by the Holy Spirit to give us this letter, Peter will not leave us on the shaky ground of our performance. At the end of each day's battle, so to speak, he reminds us that our faith and our hope could never rest in ourselves. Not in our renewed commitments, and I'm all for those. Certainly our hope and our peace cannot rest on the basis of such inconsistent obedience on our part. He reminds us that even more powerful than fresh scenes of Calvary is the fact that it is, now do look at verse 21, it is that we, capture every word, through Him are believers in God, who raised Christ from the dead. If God can raise His own Son from the dead after three days in the tomb, do you think you're too big a project? It is through Him. Are we to deny our sinful lusts? Yes, it's the language of Scripture. Deal with our selfish desires. Are we to pursue holiness? As it said in the previous verses, yes, indeed. God will judge others, we have said, for the same sins, and yet we have received Mercy and not judgment. Peter's saying, why would we presume upon his grace? But we do. So whatever sins we may confess as he leads us to repentance, he is faithful to chasten us, his children. Let us also confess that every sin committed since we put our faith in Christ was something that was presumptuous. Something that was an insult to his sufferings and death on our behalf. Nothing less than the very lifeblood of the Christ could redeem our souls. Would we tread it underfoot so carelessly with our transgressions? We ought to stand in awe that this plan to save us was a plan laid out before the world even began, but is now, just now, so appropriately, fully and completely, the means by which we will make it home. It is the blood that speaks It is the blood that means our whole trust, our faith, our living hope is in God alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, not even my best efforts. Nothing I bring simply to thy cross, I cling. For more than a decade now, ten years or more, it's those MasterCard commercials are pretty powerful subliminal messages, I think. Uh, The first one they ever did shows a young boy all smiles at a ballpark with his dad. Now, the prices have changed uh, since then, but the lines with very moving scenes uh, went something like this. Two tickets, 
$120. Two hot dogs and popcorn, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. And then there's a pause. Real conversation with your 12-year-old son. What's the next word? Priceless. Some things money can't buy. For everything else, there is MasterCard. There are some things that money can't buy. Peace with God. The joy of the Lord. The freedom of forgiveness. The fellowship of believers. Life everlasting. Redemption. Priceless. I don't know if you have a MasterCard or not. I really don't care. But I do hope you have the Master. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Stand together with me at this time. Bob, we're going to hold off on that last hymn, given the hour. And these folks were up so early. I uh, commend to you the words of that last hymn. You can take them home and contemplate the message of Jesus I come. Where else will we go if not to him? We may feel like saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But you'll hear him say, fear not and follow me. I'll take care of things. I'll make you what I want you to be. You'll be my disciple. I want to pray rather than sing as we close this service. I want to pray for all of us. Let's bow before Him. Oh, Father, at what great price, what precious blood, what mercies, what unmerited and undeserved favor we have received in the gospel that You opened our eyes to and granted to us the faith to trust and believe. Oh, what mercy. Father, may it motivate us to keep us walking in your steps as you lead. But even beyond our performance, we're so thankful that our hope and our faith, not in ourselves, but in our God, who gave His Son, who shed His blood. And I say to any here this morning, as I close this prayer and we're dismissed, if you're not His child, you can become His child. You hear the voice of Jesus saying, Come, whosoever will may come. I bid you, even if it be the first time, maybe especially if it is the first time, oh, believe and trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who believe have received eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Today, Father, we have gloried in Christ, and so we shall till he comes again by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.